when Trish was speaking right at the start and about where I should have been preaching a few weeks ago around Easter time, and it's not far away from Easter, obviously, one little thing kept going around in my mischievous mind, and it was that badge that used to be on a car and still is sometimes, a dog is for life, not for Christmas. As it is with the cross, isn't it? The cross is for life and not just for Easter. So, I mean, we should always be thinking of the cross, and hopefully this morning we're going to do that. Let me start. The, obviously, the topic is the sacrifice of the cross. You're right, John, for a minute. Sacrifice of the cross. So let's. Uh, I want to tell you a tiny story just to fix our minds on sacrifice. So there's a little girl who was suffering from a rare and serious disease. Her only chance of recovery appeared to be the blood transfusion of her five-year-old brother, who had survived the same disease and developed the antibodies needed to combat that illness. The doctor explained the situation to her little brother and asked the little boy if he would be willing to give his blood to his sister. The boy hesitated for a long time, a long time, more than it was comfortable, really. And then he said, yes, I'll do it. I'll save her. As the transfusion progressed, he lay in bed next to his sister and smiled, as all the family did, seeing the color return to her cheeks. Then his face grew pale, and his smile faded. He looked up at the doctor and asked with a trembling voice, Will I die right away, or how soon? The boy had misunderstood the doctor. He thought that he was giving his life to save hers. Sacrifice. Just a little story to cast our minds what sacrifice is, what sacrifice means. The willingness to die, the willingness to do something, give your life, give everything for someone else. There are many wonderful stories like this, but there's only one sacrifice that stands tall above all, the sacrifice of the cross. And I want us today to try and answer three questions. Question one, why was the sacrifice of Jesus required by God? Question two, what's, what has that sacrifice achieved? And number three, what should our response be to that sacrifice? So question one, why was the sacrifice required? As David mentioned when he spoke on the centrality of the cross a few weeks ago now, sin is serious. Paul in his letter to the Romans said, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our sin has caused a rift, a separation between us and our creator. Adam's sin has created a rift between humanity and our creator. No relationship can take place because sin cannot be in the same place as a holy God. Impossible. For God to act justly and allow a restored relationship, our sin must be dealt with. Sin needs to be dealt with. Sin is so severe that the punishment for this isn't just separation from God, it's death, isn't it? Paul writes in Romans, the wages of sin is death. God, when he spoke to Adam and said, if you disobey me, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. What a predicament. The punishment for sin is death, 
and we are all sinners. So how can, we be, how can we be made right with God? How can we receive his forgiveness and live with him? Well, thanks be to God that he has made a way for this to happen. We get a direct answer for why sacrifice a few verses before our passage started. In Hebrews 9, verses 22, we hear this. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. Which means, of course, that somehow with the shedding of blood, there can be. So let's look at our passage, and we look at the first four verses to start off with, as we continue to think about those first two questions that I said at the start. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Now, I get really, really, really excited when I hear shadows and types and stuff like that. People will know that it, it sends me bonkers, to be honest, because I love seeing Christ in the Old Testament. And that's exactly what we're going to do now, because the passage says, the law is only a shadow of the good things to come. What was the law? What is the law? The law was the first five books of the Old Testament. The books written by Moses. And it's a shadow of the good things to come. The whole of the law, the whole of Moses' first five books, are pointing to something beyond themselves. Yes, they're true history, but they are pointing to something else. If we didn't have that first sentence, it's a shadow of the things to come. Why, why would we bother reading the Old Testament at all? What, why is there any need? It would have finished. It's just history. Why has it made it into our Christian Bibles? Why are the Old Testament sacrifices relevant to us Christians? Later on in our passage, it says, doesn't it? God said, sacrifice and offerings I did not desire. Yet they're in our Old Testament. Why are they there? They're shadows. They're type. They're pointing to the cross. They're pointing to the sacrifice of the cross. The original sacrifices that we read in Leviticus are pointing to Jesus. The entire Old Testament points to Christ, doesn't it? In John 5.39 we read this. Jesus talking to the Pharisees said in John 5.39 You diligently study the scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. I'm in the Old Testament. It's all about me, Jesus was telling them. And then on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus gave the best Bible study ever, he said, didn't he? All of Moses and all of the prophets are about me. And he told them on that road to Emmaus all about it. St. Augustine had this wonderful little quote. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. Without reading the Old Testament, we will never get a full understanding of just what a wondrous thing the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is. The more we can understand the sacrifice of, of Jesus, the more we can fully worship him for that sacrifice. In greater joy and praise and awe and thanksgiving. So we're going to look at some of the Old Testament sacrifices to get that fuller picture, that shadow, see what they were pointing to of the ultimate sacrifice, so that we can worship God more for it. The whole law of Moses was meant to be 
kind of a school of the gospel for the Israelites to show them lessons of the coming Messiah, the coming cross. And we're going to take the subject of sacrifice, many other subjects in the, t- in the law, many other lessons. But in this one, we're going to take the subject of sacrifice. And to do it, we're going to take many different angles by looking at the different sacrifices that were offered uh, in the book of Leviticus. Now, in the football news lately, we've just had something introduced, not to the Premier League, but to the FA Cup and other cups, some dreaded thing called VAR, three dreaded little letters, Video Assistant Referee. And what it's supposed to do, it's supposed to give us a correct picture of what has happened. We'll get many different angles of a foul, was it a penalty, or a goal, did it go over the line, to get the correct decision. And what these sacrifices are, we're going to look at a few sacrifices now, they're going to give us different angles of VAR, of what is going on at the cross. So let's turn to Leviticus. Leviticus is a difficult book. It can be really difficult to digest because it's so, so rich in shadows and types. You don't have to turn there because hopefully, now this is going to be difficult because I've never used this before. We're going to have a go at using PowerPoint, but please have Leviticus if you want. We're going to go through these sacrifices and we're going to see how we can get a fuller, richer view of the sacrifice of the cross. So in Leviticus 1, we see the burnt offering. And in verse 2, great. What's happening in verse 2? One from the herd or the flock is to be used for a sacrifice. And it kind of points to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He became human. One from the flock, one from humanity, is to be taken as a sacrifice. In verse 3, yes. In verse 3, the sacrifice is to be a male without defect. A male without defect. A perfect male. In 1 Peter 1, we read, Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That's pointing to Jesus Christ, our perfect perfect, sinless sacrifice. Yes. In verse 3, we see the animal, the sacrifice, is to stand in your place at the tent of meeting. And it's to, by laying your hands on it, you identify with that sacrifice. You are identifying yourself with that sacrifice. It is to be accepted by God on your behalf, to make atonement for you, to make amends for wrong, to appease the victim of your wrong, to appease God. Where you should die, a substitute will die in your place. And what happens in verse 9? The offering is completely consumed in fire. It's a holocaust. It's where we get the word holocaust. Completely burnt up. And the fire is continually to be burned as well. It's representing God's continuing, all-consuming holy wrath at sin. 
at evil. The burnt offering. Camera angle two. The grain offering. How is this going to point to Jesus Christ? Well, the grain offering is all about seed. And seed is such an eminent word and a, a word that gives us lots and lots of different, different meanings. But Jesus referred to a seed, isn't he? The offspring of the woman. The seed of the woman. In Galatians, Paul writes, the promised seed of Abraham through all nations will be better, blessed. It's Jesus Christ. And in verse 12 and 14, we see, if you're going to give a grain offering, it's to be the first fruits. The first fruits. Jesus is referred to as our first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15. The first fruits of the new creation, of the new life. What else happens to the grain offering? Look how many times there oil is mentioned in the grain offering. It's anointed with oil. It's anointing oil. In the Old Testament, anointing oil symbolizes the anointing of the Spirit. Remember, Aaron, when he's going into priestly ministry, is anointed by that anointing oil. The seed is anointed. In verse 13, we read, All of your grain offerings are to be seasoned with salt. Do not leave salt off the cup of grain offerings. Why salt there? Well, salt represents judgment in the Old Testament. It always represents judgment. Remember Lot's wife. She turned around, disobeyed God, turned to a pillar of salt. And there's to be no yeast. No yeast in the grain offerings at all. Why no yeast? Every grain offering you bring to the Lord must be made without Yeast. Where yeast is seen in the Old Testament particularly as sin. Sin. Sin will puff up that grain offering. It will make it puffed up and it will decompose. It's a picture of sin. There is to be no sin. There's to be no yeast in the grain offering. So what do we see of the grain offering? How does that picture Jesus Christ? The anointed seed is to be judged, salted, and offered to the Lord points to Jesus. Camera angle three. See the sin offering. Now the sin offering, there's lots and lots of washing, cleansing, purification language, consecrating language. In verses four, five, and six, we see it there. There's a sprinkling of blood. It's like a washing that's put in blood on the, alt- on the horns of the altar. It's a washing, purification language. By the sacrifice and washing, by its blood, atonement is made and forgiveness comes. When purification comes, forgiveness comes. And what must happen at the sin offering? When anyone becomes aware that they are sinners, they must confess that they are sinners as they bring their offering to the Lord. In in Romans 8, Paul writes... God sent his son, Jesus Christ, as a sin offering. And in 1 Peter 1, we read, I might have put them on there. 1 Peter 1, we read that we, as Christians, have been sprinkled by his blood. We've been cleansed by his blood, marked by his blood, consecrated by Jesus' blood, washed by his blood. What does sin bring? Guilt. 
It brings guilt, the guilt offering. When you are made aware of your sin, you realize that you stand guilty before a holy and perfect God. The guilt offering tells us that a penalty comes with being guilty. A price must be paid. And it's to make restitution. Paying a fine, paying the price of sin as a compensation to the victim, to God. A price must be paid. And what's that price? It's a life. A life is to be paid as payment. Look at verse 17. Have we got verse 17 there? We haven't got verse 17 in there. Verse 17, even if you are unknowingly sinning, you are guilty and responsible. And it's to be again a male sheep without defect. There. So we've seen some shadows in that Old Testament, the offerings, the VAR of what is going on what God's lesson of those sacrifices wants the community, his chosen people, to realize. So what have they shown us? Sin against God rightfully causes his anger and wrath to burn against it. Sin must be washed away. Sin can only be washed away with blood. A price must be paid. A sacrifice must be made. Our sins must be laid on another. Another must be consumed in the fire of God's wrath in our place. Let's turn back to Hebrews. In verse 4, But it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's all pointing to Jesus Christ. They're only a shadow or of a picture of Christ to come. We stand before God guilty of sin. A life is required of payment. And then we come to verses 5 onwards. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire. Why did God not desire it if he asked for it? He doesn't desire sacrifice because he wants a relationship with us. He doesn't want this to be a sacrifice of atonement or a propitiation. He doesn't want that. He wants relationship. He doesn't want us to sacrifice things. So the solution comes, doesn't it? With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. But then I said, Jesus says, quoting the Psalms, here I am. Here Jesus comes. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. Jesus has come to fulfill the sacrifice required. Isn't that amazing? It's just so one uh, it just blows my mind. Repeated again in verses nine <coughs> onwards. Does it make your heart jump for joy when you realize that? When you're reminded of just what the sacrifice of the Son of God offers you, just what he has accomplished with that sacrifice. Have you accept have you accepted that offer? Have you accepted that it's what his sacrifice has done for you? Perhaps there's some of you that haven't and want to do that today. Please come and talk to me, talk to somebody about that. 
Do you feel guilty all the time? There's no need. It's fulfilled in Christ. That offer of fellowship and peace with God. And we could turn back to Leviticus and see yet another camera angle because there was one sacrifice that I left off. And that's a fellowship and a peace offering. We won't worry about that, John. There's a fellowship and a peace offering. The title says it all. We have fellowship and peace. The result of sacrifice, which brings atonement and forgiveness, which can wash away sin and end guilt, points to fellowship and peace with God. It was offered in thanksgiving in response to deliverance from sickness, from trouble, or even death. But that was then, and this is now. In verse 9 in our passage, we say, Jesus set aside the first to establish the second. So we're not going to bring sacrifices to God of bulls and goats as a peace offering. What are we to do then? How are we to offer a sacrifice? Well, in Romans, I think Andrew touched on it last week. We are to become living sacrifices ourselves in response to it. Our thankfulness, our peace and fellowship offering is for ourselves to become living sacrifices. It's a weird weird word, isn't it? A living sacrifice. We've just read about the death of bulls and goats and blood, but we are to be living sacrifices because we are dead. As Christians, we are dead to ourselves, but living that new life. We are to be living sacrificially for him above all else. And our passage ends with a call to just do that. Graham touched on last week. He touched on the community of the cross. We are to be a community of the cross. And as we go past the verses that we had read, we get into verse 19 onwards, and it tells us how to live. Our response should be a springboard. As we look back to the cross, it should spring us forward to live sacrificially as a community of the cross. I'm just going to read to you verses 19 onwards. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence now to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And here we are. Let's live as a community around the cross. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. There's a warning that comes with this as well. If we are not to live as a community of the cross, if we are not to continually live as living sacrifices to be repenting of our sin, there's some dreadful verses afterwards for the the unrepentant sinner among the community of God. Verse 26 onwards. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the full knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that would consume the enemies 
of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them? And who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And this is a verse that comes next, which makes me tremble. It's every time my knees knock when I read this. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let us be continually repentant of our sins. Looking back at the cross... we're not going to finish there. We're going to carry on into verse 35. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And by my righteous one, will, but my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who, who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. As I finish, let's close our eyes. Let's think of that story again at the start, the story of the little girl. Let's put ourselves in that picture. Without Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, you were, perhaps some are still here this morning, incurably sick with sin and are going to die. But you look to the cross. Not to a brother in the bed next to you who loves you and is willing to die for you. You look to the cross and you see the Son of God, bloody, nailed to the cross, because of your sin. Paying the penalty. Taking the judgment. But who loves you so much, he's willing to die so that you might live and live with him in peace and fellowship forever. You see the Father looking down at the Son. The great sacrifice of the Father giving his Son to torture, to humiliation, because he loves you so much and wants relationship. He doesn't require, he doesn't like, he doesn't want sacrifice of blood through bulls or goats. He has given his son once for all. As our passage said, there's no more sacrifice required. Jesus has done it all so that we can live without guilt. Because his son has taken guilt. We can live as though pure in God's sight. Because we have been washed by the blood of his son. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the sacrifice of the cross. Help us to be a community of the cross. Help us always to build one another up. To look back at the cross. And when we look back at the cross, help it be a springboard into 
that community. Help us to tell others of the cross the wonderful, fantastic news that sin is done away with. The victory of the cross. Of the Son of God on that cross taking sin, taking death for us all. For His chosen people. We thank You so much for this. Amen.